So yes, there is still more to say, as Carol questioned the other day, but on long retreats like this where we're giving teachings um, every day pretty much, morning and evening, I think the skillful way to view it is kind of like a Dhamma smorgasbord. And you know, you get into trouble if you try to take a bit of everything the plate gets loaded up and it might look good, but the, the result is not so, not so happy. But with this kind of offering of these many, many days of teachings over all these weeks, hopefully there's something for everyone. And that's what we find. You know, some teachings really land with someone, for other people not so much. So there's this breadth of offering, um, inviting you into the depth of the, the Buddha's teachings. And I really trust what I call Dhamma osmosis. You don't need to figure it out. You don't need to remember it. You don't need to write anything down. You're just kind of swimming in this Dhamma soup. And it's going to go in, you know, one way or another. So I really trust that. And what you need will will land or you'll it'll be there for you when the occasion calls for it, everything else, just let go. That's the skillful way. And not to get overwhelmed with all of these different lists and and categories of teachings. I gave that handout just so you wouldn't be kind of brain fritzing trying to remember everything. There is a lot. You know, the Buddha taught for 45 years. His teachings, collected teachings, come to some 20 volumes in, in English. But rather than lists, I I prefer to see them as maps and the old-fashioned kind of maps. Remember those where you could lay out a big piece of paper and really see if I go in this direction, I'll see this. Our, Our view of maps, it might be really helpful, but it's very limited, right? You know, you get this little square of information and the good thing about GPS, it'll redirect you if you go off, you know, recalculating. But you don't get to see the whole lay of the land And I think uh, the Buddha's teachings really provide this very wonderful, expansive map where there's not one one right way. You know, there there are these options or these these directions or guidelines, um, offerings, and each of us needs to find the way that works for us. And I might have said something like this before. I think we kind of shift in how we relate to these teachings, especially the traditional teachings, the suttas, the discourses from the Buddha, when we don't see them as dry old texts that we should memorize or study or know in some way, but we hear them as practice instructions. It's the Buddha speaking to us about how to practice. And of course, the sutta that I've been um, speaking about, the Satipatthana Sutta, is most literally that. It is the instructions we've been given to do the kind of practice that we're, giving, we're practicing here. So really is uh, practice instructions. And just to remind you, we started with the first foundation, mindfulness of the body, just, you know, the, this thing that hopefully is the most can be fairly obvious, reliable to know in our experience, using the breath and our awareness of the body to calm and invite steadiness of mind. And then all of these different practices, 14 different practices, basically cultivating wisdom and a wise relationship to the body. 
And that uh, foundation, as all the subsequent ones, has a refrain or an insight section where we're uh, invited to look at the the three characteristics of that experience. It's impermanent conditioned nature of arising and passing. Then uh, the next foundation of Vedana or feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. I know a lot of you have been working with that, finding it helpful. Third foundation I spoke about last time, mindfulness of mind states. This very non-judgmental, does the mind have aversion or not aversion? Greed or non-greed? Is it concentrated or restless? Just simply knowing um, what our experience of mind is, but so different to actually turn to look directly at the contents of mind rather than, at the mind itself, rather than getting lost in its content. And now tonight I want to talk about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is the biggest picture again of practice kind of an evolution out of the earlier foundations, but really within this one foundation, you could say a map of the entire scheme of practice teachings of the Buddha. And so this is the foundations of uh, mindfulness of Dhamma, Dhamma Nupassana. And as I said, the foundations are getting more subtle, but there's a real, they're building on each other and there's a strong connection between the third and the fourth foundation. Third foundation, as I just said, is the awareness of mind and the contents of the mind. In the fourth foundation, we're asked again to look at the mind, but to be aware of the context within which these experiences of mind are happening. Look a little more deeply. Certainly to see, as we we're invited to in the earlier foundations, to see that everything is conditioned. But here to see, as we've said in other, other ways, that the very fact that it's conditioned means that we can have a skillful relationship to those experiences and create or support, nourish the conditions that lead to wholesome or beneficial or skill, skillful states of mind and learn how to unwind, decrease, let go of the conditions that create suffering states of mind and how again and again to turn the mind towards freedom in different ways. This is the, the thrust of this fourth foundation of mindfulness. I've been reading a book called Unexpected Freedom by Ajahn Munindo. He's a monk in the Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho lineage, um, the Thai forest tradition. And when we lived in England, he was our local monk. And so I have a lot of fondness for him. He would, they would do a circuit and come by every month or two and give teachings to our meditation communities from New Zealand, so close to my original home. Um, and it was wonderful to read the kind of the benefit of all his years of practice. That's such a rigorous training to be in that monastic system for so long. And he, his first teacher was Ajahn Tate. And he said the first instruction he received from him was very simple. It was, your task in practice is to realize the difference between the heart and the activity of the heart. It's that simple. And when Ajahn Tate is saying heart, he's using the term citta, which I think we've said kind of means heart-mind, somewhere in between or encompassing both. You could say to realize the mind and the activity of mind. 
to realize this knowing capacity within which all of these experiences are happening and be able to separate them. That was his simple instruction. So he was there in Thailand practicing and very difficult conditions as a Westerner in Thailand with different food and culture and language and um, conditions. He said after a while he looked like death. He was eating, you know, white rice, pickled fish and chilies was the basic diet. But finally, he said, he had an experience of wonderful clarity, just came, kind of came over him, wasn't expecting it. And he shared it with Ajahn Tate who said, Keep exercising mindfulness in the moment and learn to come back sooner to this clear way of seeing. It's that simple. Just make the effort to remember. And it reminded me of Guy's answer to the question this morning or his talk the other night where he talked about this instruction from the Buddha, turn the mind to the deathless, the deathless element. If we know that space of clarity It's not going back and clinging to it, grasping to it, but actually integrating in somewhere so it's a known experience that we can remember, invite in, have some access to. So it sounds simple, right? Ajahn Menindo said that 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 experience was followed by horrendously unpleasant mind states, indescribably terrible states of self-doubt. Why? You know, because he wanted it back. But he said due to the kindness of his teacher, he was able to survive. It took about seven years before he was more able to fully appreciate what the teacher had told him. I don't know whether that's um, inspiring or not. (laughs) But obviously something kept him going. We all do it, right? We have those good experiences and the mind just clings. We'll talk more later about the mind of non-clinging. Ajahn Menindo went on to say that Ajahn Chah had an image for this development that's slow, seven years. You know, you couldn't say that was fast. He says, these moments of mindfulness and understanding are like drips of water coming out of the tap. In the beginning, it's drip, drip drip with big gaps between the drips. Little by little, with consistent effort, these moments become drip, 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 then drip, 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 and then they become a stream. This is what we've been talking about with this continuity of mindfulness. As we start to fill in the gaps, more sense of presence, more uh, connectedness to what's happening, the momentum builds. You've been feeling that, right? It just builds and it mightn't seem steady and it might seem like it's, even though it's been a month, it's been seven years since you've been here. Um, It's the direction that it's going, this momentum or continuity. So as far as the fourth foundation, it is a complex teaching. So it's not something that you just kind of wake up in the morning and decide to do, you know, or after hearing this talk, now you're going to practice the fourth foundation. I think if you don't know it already, you will soon see it's, it's kind of complicated. But it is the natural progression of practice. It's the result of refining awareness and being steeped in the Dharma, in this Dharma osmosis, this Dharma soup that we're all swimming in. And so we just start to bring more clarity or understanding 
to experience. You know, we start with just knowing the experience, but then the lens can widen a little. And it kind of, it's what you do with your mind once the mindfulness is more developed, once you're not quite so restless, once there's not so much of a tendency to discursive mind. In the beginning, you know, we're just corralling the mind, right? I spoke about sheepdog mind uh, in one of the other talks. We're just kind of trying to get everything together. Once there is this more sense, and again, these are all relative terms, it's what you do with the experience. And if it seems too complicated, really, just let it go. Um, this is something, as I said, it's a natural direction practice goes, and all of us will have different ways into this. But I'm hoping that as I speak tonight, you'll see it really is just a different framing of what we've already been talking about all the time, and that you are actually doing it. Anytime you're meeting the moment skillfully with satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, this is practicing the fourth foundation. And so it's really about bringing a Dhamma understanding to your experience, to what's happening. Sometimes even reframing it. Sort of what we do in our practice meetings with you. It's like, oh yeah, do you see this happening? Or this tendency of mind? Or impermanence? Or suffering? It's this reframing that can be so helpful. So it's the mindfulness of Dhammas, Dhamma Nupassana. And this word, I think we've said, has many meanings. Simplest meaning is just the truth of things or reality, the nature of reality. It can mean the teachings of the Buddha in all their breadth and depth. But it also means discrete objects. This is a Dhamma. The bell is a Dhamma. Um, So it has this range of meanings. And because of that and because of the complexity of the section, in the sutta, it's led to a lot of differing interpretations of what it actually means. But I like one very succinct definition from a fellow teacher, Taraniya, who said, Dhammanupasana means seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So it basically means seeing Dhammic principles in the things of our experience, in these arisings at the six sense doors. And this is a simple way of saying this, aligning or, or bringing Dhamma understanding to experience. And so in this section, it's a, a compilation of lists. So it's a list of lists. We're asked to bring mindfulness to some of our old friends. Starts with the five hindrances, then the five aggregates, the khandas. We've talked about a little bit of form, feeling, perception, Uh, mental formations and consciousness, the six sense spaces, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, etc., the mind, the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment, and then the four noble truths. So these are the, the lists in the section, and for each list, there's a slightly different practice that we're asked to do. And as I said, it develops out of the earlier foundations. You can really see it kind of layering on and coming naturally out of the earlier foundations. But the difference here is what we do with the experience, not just the bare mindfulness of it, but what's a wise response to this particular experience. So it's inviting skillful use of investigation, um, 
you could say reflective thought or contemplative thought where we act where it actually leads to insight into clear seeing so it's not discursive thought it's not papancha where the mind is you know full of thoughts of i me and mine and running off in every direction into past and future it's thoughts in the moment directed to experience and to clear seeing so um, very different than our usual patterns of, of thinking. It's the kind of thinking that helps us understand. So it's not just repetitive, you know, going around in circles, but there's a clarity uh, and an immediacy to this kind of thinking. And we often talk about in practice the importance of the present moment, right? It's all about being in the present moment. As they say, where else can you be but in the present moment? But of course, we wander in the mind into past and future. Here, this, um, I call it the three mind moments, can actually be a skillful way of understanding or meeting our experiences. Obviously, the present moment where we recognize if there's mindfulness, what's happening. And so then there can be satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. It has a wisdom naturally to it. And there's just a slight reflection. As we recognize this experience and what's happening, what were the preceding mind moments? Could be momentary, could be longer, of what I was paying attention to or what I was cultivating. And then we make a choice in this moment, present moment, how to respond to that. Let go, cultivate, you know, have a different relationship to. And we kind of keep track of what happens. That I call a future moment, though of course there's no such thing, right? There's only this moment, the, the, the next moment that's become this moment. But there's kind of a sense of the direction that we're heading. That's what I call the future moment. And so there's really a place for po- what I call post-mortem mindfulness, where you are just reflecting on your... Ex- when, you, when you come into mindfulness in this moment, this very um, clear reflection about what you were paying attention to, what you were cultivating, and whether it was skillful or not, can be really valuable, whether it was from yesterday... I think I told my story of the ice cream where it wasn't until the next day I realized how lost in delusion and aversion and greed I had been, hadn't even noticed. It was really helpful to see that a day later. So these three mind moments, present moment, past moment, future moment, this is the the work of the um, fourth foundations of mindfulness. And when you look at what's included in this sutta, it's kind of like the greatest hits of the Buddha, right? All the main teachings are in there, everything. The three characteristics is not one listed there separately, but it's woven throughout in that refrain or insight section. We're asked to look into, notice the arising and passing, the unsatisfactory nature of all of these experiences. And if you read the whole text, you see there's a lot of what we call boilerplate, where it's repetition of certain um, themes or sections of words. And this you'll find throughout the suttas. And it's, it's understood to be, have been a great uh, aid to the memorization of these texts. For 500 years, they weren't written down. So memorizing them, having them be kind of standardized was really helpful. So 
it's a little hard for me to actually believe that the Buddha just sat down and this all rolled off his tongue in, in one go. Maybe he had an amazing mind and it possibly happened. But I could totally understand that it was added to a little bit over time of like, this makes sense, this fits in with this, and that it developed whether it was in his lifetime or afterwards. Venerable Analeo, the scholar in residence at um, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, who's done a lot of comparative study, said he thinks the earliest versions were very simple, just the hindrances and the factors of awakening. But I personally think there's so much value to the scope of what is in the sutta that we that has come down to us that I think it's valuable for us to um, know and practice with. And also because it again and again points to um, the, this underlying theme, which is more important than the discrete parts, which is it's possible for us to cultivate the wholesome. It's possible for us to reduce and even completely let go of the suffering states of mind. And it's possible to not cling, to let go of clinging. This is what's underlying this fourth foundation of mindfulness. And this is what's so important. So I'll be highlighting that again and again. And if you don't remember anything, that's the most important thing to remember. So again, this might seem like a lot, but just take in the thematic elements that I'll be pointing to. So it starts with the five hindrances. We give a whole talk on it because it's so valuable for us to know how to work skillfully with these obscurations that that, that can be hindering to our capacity to be fully present with equanimity. And because they're difficult states of mind, the practice is to learn how to diminish them, to be not so caught or identified with them. In the text, the first practice in the fourth foundation is just like the third foundation. One is invited to be aware, is the hindrance present or not present? And again, there's great skillfulness to that. If it's present, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, whatever, we want to know that. We also want to recognize when a hindrance is not present. And, it, you know, it's kind of, you don't want to be always, oh, doubt's not my own, restlessness, you know, you can't be always naming what's not present. But especially if somewhat, something ends, it's really helpful to recognize that you're not so lost as you were. So it starts in the same way. But then it goes on to say, the meditator understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire, how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. Have you got that? I don't need to repeat it, do I? So it might seem complex, but some of you may recognize it's the formulation of the teaching, a foundation of the uh, noble eightfold path factor of the Buddha, of wise effort, where it's about cultivating the wholesome, and diminishing the unwholesome. I call these four wise efforts, or I have my, um, it's not an acronym, but to help me remember it, the four A's, where we avoid or abandon things that are unskillful, lead to hindering states of mind, and we arouse or advance, as in develop, those things that are wholesome, that are skillful. We've talked about it in different ways before, but to see this highlighted 
in this meditation manual that the fourth foundation is. So if we recognize, say, sensual desire, the first of the hindrances, we recognize it, that's practicing the third foundation. A desire is present, wanting is present in the mind. But recognizing that it's a hindrance and understanding the conditions that bring it about, what we're attending to, what's happening in the body and the mind, and what allows it and invites it and supports it in diminishing and not being so strong, that's practicing the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And ultimately, that's kind of what we have to do with the hindrances if we really want to develop this skillful attitude. We have to recognize them as hindrances. So just to really highlight the power of that, it's one thing to say, oh, desire is present, or I see grasping, but to say, oh, desire is present and it's a hindrance, you can't kind of fool yourself in quite the same way, you know, oh, desire is present, but it feels so good. No, if you clearly say to yourself, it's a hindrance, something shifts, you know, the light bulb goes off. You acknowledge the truth of what's happening. Oh, this is actually a suffering state or a state of confusion. And that's why I'm so disturbed or trapped or lost in this, because of its hindering nature. We're not just so focused on the pleasantness of the desire or the object, but we're really seeing clearly with mindfulness, it's a hindrance. And then the practice is instead of kind of pushing and wrangling the attention back to the breath or the body, explore what has been going on here that I'm, I've been so lost in desire or restlessness or sleepiness. So again, just this momentary glance almost to the previous moments of what you were paying attention to. What were the thoughts? What was the feeling in the body? What was the, 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 the aspect of experience of past or future that you were paying attention to and understanding it? This is how we develop skillfulness around this. If we're just kind of batting, you know, the hindrances away, like the whack-a-mole game, you know, it's just going to pop up somewhere else. It's not until we understand these um, patternings and how they arise. Again, not telling a whole story. It's not getting lost in, oh, we're thinking this and then this and then I thought of that and this and that. You know, it, you really know it, right? Ah. Oh. I was really just pulled into that fantasy of desire because it felt pleasant. It's often very simple. Or I, was, I had a knee pain and I just wanted to escape it. I checked out by singing songs to myself or whatever it was. I can remember practicing here a number of years ago um, before they did this nice kitchen, a dining room remodel where they expanded it and kind of opened it up and whatever. And I just started to notice that every time I walked into the dining room, it was like someone pressed play on a tape and my 10 complaints about the dining room would come up, you know, and I started to notice it would just play literally like a tape. You know, I'd walk in there, condiments are too crowded. There's only one toaster, four slices for hundred people. It doesn't work. Floor is sticky. Lighting is gloomy. I, you know, I can't even remember what they were. But they were the same things every time. Once I started to notice it, and just kind of this, oh, you know, this aversion I would notice every time I walked in there. Um, I tried everything, right? You know, guarding the sense doors, you'd hear that. But 
I would see out of the corner. I knew where the condiments were. It's like, you know, if someone says, don't think of a pink elephant, you're like, I know they're there, too crowded and grimy and whatever. The toaster, you know, I just have to see that glimpse of white. And it's like, why don't they have more toasters? There's a hundred. Whatever it was, I tried, you know, I noted it, judging, judging. I felt the emotion. It was contraction and aversion. It was a little bit... You know, underneath that was wanting to be more in control, and underneath that was fear. Didn't matter. Walk in the dining room, tape would play. Got so frustrating. Finally, I came up with my judging practice, which I've shared with some people. You may have heard me say it before, and it was the only thing that worked. I call it distraction uh, meditation. So you may have heard, I think someone mentioned, Joseph has a judging um, practice where he says, when you notice a judging thought, you say, and the sky is blue. So I tried that, and the sky is blue. Damn right the sky is blue, and you know, they should have more toasters. It was like, (laughs) they totally agreed with me. So my practice was, every time I had a judging thought in the dining room or anywhere, I would add, and chipmunks are cute. Because I'm an animal lover, I'd sit out there and watch the little chipmunks, and it was just like distraction therapy. It's like, don't pay attention. And it would just put a smile on my face. I just dropped the whole thing. I was just, you know, when you talk about self-created suffering, great example. So, you know, we need to sort of understand how do we work with this condition? You can't just keep batting it away. You need to see what is going to help you really let go of the tendency that uh, comes out of that mind state. I think I've talked before about, um, I think it was in a Q&A session, about sleepiness, another of the hindrances, and how I think it's helpful to determine what kind of sleepiness it is. Because knowing what kind it is, you can see it has different conditions and therefore somewhat different responses. You know, there's garden variety sleepiness, tiredness of mind and body. What's What's the antidote? Rest. You know, you can pump yourself up with, you know, cold water or showers or caffeine, but basically the body needs more rest. And then there's sinking mind, which is an imbalance of concentration or calm and energy where we're kind of mindful, but we just keep slipping off the object. But it's not due to physical or mental tiredness, and it just needs a little more energy in the meditation practice. If you still find you're going, getting into sleepiness, but you're pretty sure that neither of those two are really happening, then it could be a defense mechanism. It's just like something starts to loom up and the mind sees it out of the corner of the mind's eye and just goes, no, not going there. Go into dullness, into sleepiness, into fuzziness so I don't have to feel. So it's helpful for us to have a sense what kind of sleepiness, sloth and torpor it is, and we can only know that by knowing what the preceding conditions were and then seeing what antidotes work. If an antidote, if just getting more rest helps, well, it's probably just that. If bringing more investigation in helps, it was probably sinking mind or more more alertness. If it's a defense mechanism, we need to start getting curious about what was in that preceding mind moment. And again, I don't want to say any of this to like, you have to be madly thinking about what was happening. This is talking about on this intuitive meditative level, where as we quieten down and start to trust 
our direct experience, these insights or openings happen more, more, uh, they're more available, more natural. And then the hindrance of doubt. Again, I think I've talked a little bit about this, how it's the most challenging because when we're in it, we can't recognize it. It's like delusion. It's really uh, uh, undermining everything we might think or feel or believe. And we don't know what to trust. And you can see how there can just be a moment of uncertainty or a moment of fear. And the doubt will just take that and create a big tidal wave of confusion. And so we need to see that. Oh, it was just the mindfulness didn't land clearly enough. There was a moment of uncertainty. And then everything got called into question. You were just trucking along quite fine a moment ago. And then the doubt, which can be a very conditioned pattern, is there in all its full force. So we need to see that, see the preceding conditions, and understand what for us helps us work with doubt. Is it reaffirming our intention or our aspiration? Is it thinking of someone who inspires us and the possibility of the path? Is it faith? Is it, you know, reflecting on the Buddha or Dharma or Sangha? We need to know this. Just to question and challenge the thoughts themselves. Are these thoughts true? Are they for my well-being? What I want to believe? But I think really helpful is to name it as doubt And particularly, again, it's a hindrance. We can't then, you know, start believing. It's like, oh, I see, it's really serving. It's Mara knocking at the door. And you can either open that door wide and say, come on in, or say, no, I see you, Mara. I'm not going to believe this. You know, when we're in doubt, we think there's something wrong with me, something wrong with the situation, something wrong with the teaching, something wrong with my practice, but it's just doubt. And so to see it in that way, something can sometimes, I mean, not always, it's not like a magic bullet, but something can just let go, release. So this understanding that we gain from our own direct experience. You can hear all these teachings and different skillful means, but you yourself can figure this out as you start to track your experience. The next in the list is the aggregates. And again, I don't think we've given a talk on this yet. Someone may do um, maybe this six weeks or certainly in the next six weeks. But we've mentioned them. These are these uh, aspects or components of experience that the Buddha said we tend to cling to and identify with. So form, feeling, Vedana, our perceptions. We've spoken a little bit about each of these. The mental formations and consciousness itself, identifying with consciousness. In this section of the sutta, the practice is to see, know the aggregate, know it's, um, how it's manifesting, and then see how is it created and how does it disappear or pass away. Again, to see its impersonal, impermanent nature. And that if we're trying to cling or control any one of the aggregates, we're going to suffer. The aggregates in and of themselves are not a problem. The Buddha had aggregates, you know, form, feeling, perception. He always said it's the panch upadana kanda, the five aggregates of clinging that lead to suffering. So it's the clinging 
that's the problem. There was a great question this morning about clinging and the nature of clinging. How do we let go? Again, we're using all of Joseph's good lines because he's not here, so we can take them all. I love this one. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. (laughs) I thought it was a good one. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Everything and anything, any moment, develop the mind of non-clinging and really see that is for your well-being. Clinging is suffering. And it's just a moment, a mind moment away to non-clinging. This is the theme throughout the suttas. See that things are conditioned, arising and passing. If we try to cling or control, suffering. Let go and let them have their nature with wisdom, non-suffering. And so it's very similar. The next practice list is the six sense bases which again, we've talked about a lot. This is our experience of the world, how we create the world through seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching. And it's what we're mindful of, right? It's a big part of our meditation practice, knowing seeing and hearing and the sensations of the body. Again, Joseph, he says, it's really simple. There's only ever one or more of six things happening, right? That's all there is. That's all you have to do. Unfortunately, more complicated than that. But in the text, it says the practitioner understands the eye, understands forms, and understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. Because again, the eye isn't the problem. The forms aren't the problem, right? We really need to get that, or the sounds, or the body sensations. It's the fetter that arises dependent on both, basically how we get caught. There's actually different interpretations of what the, what the fetter is, what the, the Buddha was meaning by that word fetter, but I think for our purposes, the simple, simplest is just the kalesas, greed, aversion, and delusion. How am I relating to this sight, this sound, liking, not liking, spaced out? This is um, what it's pointing to. And so we understand the eye. It's a, it's a, it's a helpful sense, sense door to have, just like hearing is, just like smelling is. But many of us are obsessed with sights, right? This is a sight-obsessed culture with this emphasis on seeing. And it's one of the ways many of us create a strong sense of self through our body image, and by how we relate and see the world out there through seeing. And we can get entranced by forms. Um, I just saw, a, you know, one of these things that comes up on the internet, a slideshow of the 50 most beautiful places in the world. It sounds kind of appealing, right? Just a, like calendar, you know, these calendars or screensavers of these beautiful images. And then the subtext was, and what they really look like. And so it had things like the Great Wall of China, which I've never seen, but you know, it's so kind of almost mythological. And they had an image of it snaking, you know, over the hills, looked, looked, you know, ah, so to be there and to sense the history of that whole region. And then the next slide was what it actually looks like, which was so chock-a-block with people, you know, it was like 
Fifth Avenue at rush hour or something. It's like you could imagine what it was actually like. They had a picture of the Mona Lisa. You know, everyone says, oh, you should see, it's the most famous work of art in Western culture. You have to see the Mona Lisa if you go to Italy. They don't tell you it's the size of a postage stamp. (laughs) And if you go to see the Mona Lisa, it's so popular, there's a rope, you know, keeping you away. And so they had a picture of the Mona Lisa and then the picture of what it was actually like. So this tiny little painting, the rope keeping you away, and this mosh pit of people, you know, trying... Well, I was going to say to see the Mona Lisa. They weren't trying to see the Mona Lisa. They were trying to take a photo of seeing the Mona Lisa. So it was just hands and arms with things on sticks and cameras and phones. And this way, you know, it was like a porcupine. That's what seeing the Mona Lisa is like. You don't actually see it. You see that. And then the last one I liked, you know, there was, I stopped after a while, after a few, because I got the point. You know, it was one of these beautiful, I've seen it before, it's a rock ledge in Norway, I think, that really, you know, goes out into space and always has a, a person sitting on the edge, sort of into infinity, and it looks just so surreal and peaceful. And then they showed what it's actually like, which is, you know, this mob of people, and it's like you're more likely to get pushed off the rock than actually sit there and enjoy the view. But we have this obsession, right? We say, oh, you have to see that. You have to go there and see that. I remember being at the Grand Canyon a while ago, and you know, you're sitting there. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing, right? Just trying to take it in, the stillness and the vastness and the, you know, archaeological layers of it and heard this strange voice coming up behind me. You know, you can kind of tell people having a normal conversation, this was not that. And what what it was, as it got closer, was a man commenting, narrating to his camera, his video camera, seeing the Grand Canyon, right? Now I'm walking up to the Grand Canyon, now there's a fence, now we're looking over, now we're... And it's like, I don't know what it was like for him, it was terrible for me to have him (laughs) narrating that. And it reminds me of this... um, poem I like by Wendell Berry, The Vacation. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly towards the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it preserving it forever, the river, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat, behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation even as he was having it, so that after he had had it, he would still have it. It would be there. With the flick of a switch, there it would be. But he would not be in it. He would never be in it because he wasn't, right? We miss it when we're in this obsession. So we understand how these fetters get created. So I've been speaking a lot about sight, but it happens with the other senses too. And what actually happens on retreat is our other senses often get really enlivened. The hearing and the smelling and the tasting that we sometimes don't pay enough attention to enlivened in good ways and sometimes in challenging ways. You know, the notes about keep quiet and no more noise in the door. So there is a sensitivity that, that we get on retreat. It's understandable. But 
We want to understand what's happening here. We've talked about guarding the sense doors. And this isn't kind of narrow, blinkered, you know, I was trying to like, just don't look, don't look, don't look. That's not so helpful. But it's more this inward referencing where we're just not wanting or so interested in being pulled out to the things. And it's, you know, of course, lovely to, to watch the sunset or see a flower, but not looking to that as the arbiter of whether we're happy or not looking to that to create the sense of self. And so the practice is to see around all the six sense doors, the arising of the unarisen fetter, the abandoning of the arisen fetter, and the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. It's the same, it sounds complicated, but basically it's the same theme. You see where you get caught, if you get caught, you let go, and you start to understand how not to get quite so caught next time. This is the same theme. You could just say that's the crux of our whole practice there, understanding when we're caught, how to release, how we got caught, and how we might not be quite so caught in the future. And so guarding the sense doors or actually really noting these senses. So saying, oh, I'm seeing, especially in the dining room, it's great practice. Seeing, seeing, because there's so much going on there around the food, around what's happening. Really helpful. The next of the list is the seven factors of awakening. And John gave a whole talk on this, so I'm not going to take too much time. But really, again, to see These are things, because again, this is now, we're into the skillful or wholesome list. This is what we want to cultivate. How do we cultivate these practices or these factors of mind? So for my, the first one is mindfulness, right? To know mindfulness is present or not present. This simple discernment and the invitation to come back in to mindfulness. How does mindfulness arise out of non-mindfulness? How do we develop how the arisen mindfulness, this is the text of the sutta, comes to fulfillment by development. And I think I said, it sounds familiar to me, I said something like this before. People often ask, why do I get lost? You know, I'm, I'm really committed, I'm trying to pay attention, and I just lose it off into fantasy. I think the more interesting question is, how do we come back? How does mindfulness arise out of non-mindfulness? This is the important thing. The best answer we have is successive moments of mindfulness create the habit of mindfulness, the condition of mindfulness, the interest in mindfulness, the recognition of mindfulness as a wholesome and pleasant mental factor. All of these create the possibility of more moments of mindfulness. And then the fourth stage or step is how arisen mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development. And even just, it's sort of a simple sentence in a way, but it's kind of the whole path there. We can really develop, in this case, the factor of mindfulness, but all of the other ones, investigation, energy, rapture, we can develop it. It can come to fulfillment, meaning it can be developed. So it's our ally, it's our support, it's a it's a positive um experience that we can rely on. And so it could say a lot more about that, but the, the, the patterning goes through for each of the other 
factors of mindfulness. We can develop them. And then it's interesting that the last of these factors uh, in the last section is the Four Noble Truths. They're here in this um, treatise on developing mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths. This really invites us to see, again, the Four Noble Truths are not just a philosophy, not what Buddhists believe, not just what the Buddha taught. They're meditative practices that we can actually do. And it's kind of like notice, noting Vedana, oh, this is pleasant or unpleasant. We can say, oh, this is suffering. First noble truth, right here. We get lots of opportunities to notice that, right? Or oh, this is craving. And then the practice for craving is to abandon it. And the, but you see it as the origin of suffering. And craving includes uh, aversion, not liking, and it certainly includes delusion, because if we weren't in some way deluded, we wouldn't be craving. So they're all there. And we just start to see, and many of you have talked about how helpful it has been to actually say, oh, this is suffering. This experience of mind or body, not just, you know, pain or wrong or shouldn't be happening, but this direct experience of suffering. And then the wise response to that, you know, whether it's self-compassion or wisdom to see, it's because the mind is resisting or aversive or attached, whether we're adding the second arrow of woe is me and it shouldn't be happening and why is this happening, we start to see that. And then as Guy was speaking about the other night, the moments of not suffering, where the mind is actually at peace, at ease, where there's equanimity, where there's resting, lack of resistance, lack of suffering. There's moments where of temporary nibbana, momentary um, freedom. And then actually practicing also the path that leads to the end of suffering. And the Buddha would say that if you're practicing in the way we're doing here, you're fulfilling all of the factors in the Eightfold Path. Of, of wise understanding and intention and speech and action and livelihood, effort, um, mindfulness and concentration. We're doing it all in our practice here. And so we're fulfilling or practicing this fourth foundation of mindfulness. But as I want to keep highlighting, rather than getting into just all the details, the intention of this fourth foundation is to integrate the Buddha's teachings into our direct experience or to use a Dharma framework to understand what's happening and to understand it. So we're not just, it's not just about bare awareness, not just about uh, simple mindfulness, though that's the um, foundation, that's the way, where we, that's the foundation on which we build these practice, but the Freeing practices or the uh, um, awakening practices are not just being a passive observer. Oh, anger is here or dullness is here. Or, you know, I'm lost in this or that. It's like, what do I do now? What's a wise and compassionate response? So anytime you're practicing skillful means, anytime you're letting go of the unwholesome, working with the hindrances, using an antidote, 
understanding the conditioned nature of experience, seeing things arising and passing, how can I try and control it? And the mind just lets go. That's practicing the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So, as I said, I, I think you, you, if you didn't realize it, you're practicing it more than you think. These, these insights or these skillful means, this combination of wisdom and compassion are what we're doing as we use this trained mind to understand our direct experience. So it might seem complicated, but there's a theme here that I hope um, is helpful. And that really is one of great agency. We are not the helpless victims of these crazy minds. And yes, as kind of unreliable as the body is, it's not the determinant, determinant of whether we're happy or not. As changeable as the weather is, that's not going to, we can't hold on to it and find our happiness there or in the food that's offered. It's all has these, this nature of the three characteristics and the more clearly we see that, the more clearly we understand this, the more freedom and happiness we can find. And so within the fourth foundation itself, there's a progression that's overlaid or built on the previous foundation. So again, just pointing to how brilliant this whole map is, starting with the body, the breath, calming and connecting and seeing the nature of the body, then these more subtle experiences. But in the fourth foundation, the first um, list we're instructed to work with is our old friends, the hindrances. So we start with where we often are with the challenges of practice, you know, trying to figure out how do I do this? Once we start to get a little bit of a handle, and again, they come and go in their strength and which ones, and it's not like until we're, you know, quite free that they ever completely leave, but we start to see that they subside a little. They're not so, um, we're not so obsessed by them. We're not so caught in them as perhaps we were earlier in our practice. So we begin to see a little more clearly because hindrances block clear seeing. So now we're seeing more clearly. Then the Buddha invites us into seeing the direct nature of experience through the lens of the aggregates or the six sense spaces we've talked about. Again, seeing they're not personal, not I, me, or mine, always changing, have this inherent unsatisfactoriness. So we start to develop the wisdom in our practice. And then what can happen, and these don't necessarily happen, you know, even though there's a progression, it's not always linear. But when the mind sees clearly in this way, the wholesome factors just naturally get developed. The mindfulness gets strengthened, the investigation, uh, the energy and the joy, and then the calming factors. So there's this very, again, clear and makes great sense to me progression with all of that kind of massaging of the mind, of the experience, all that steeping, I should say, this osmosis, dharma osmosis, seeing our experience in this dharma way through the lens of the dharma, then the Four Noble Truths actually become something we can practice with. 
we can see, oh, this is suffering. We understand it. This is craving that leads to suffering. We can let it go. We can have a direct taste of the mind at ease that has let go, not so troubled, not so agitated. And we can know the freedom of Nibbana. And so it's an amazing map of practice. Again, I constantly amazed at the Buddha's mind and even if it was added to it's still a great map that got improved he didn't have Wikipedia to reference you know put this here and a PowerPoint presentation move things around you know totally from his own wisdom and, and experience and he said in the closing words of the sutta practitioners If anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, like Ajahn Manindo, one of two truths could be expected for them. Either final knowledge, here or now, which is full awakening, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. So it's the third stage of awakening. So seven years, no question, that's what would happen let alone seven years, and the, this is all repeated, but the, it's abbreviated in my text here, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month. If anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for them either final knowledge here and now, full awakening, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. So it was said with reference to the teachings. So seven days. (laughs) Whether you're here for six weeks or three months, you've definitely got at least seven days here. Don't hold back. We often say we should advertise our retreats as, you know, seven-day enlightenment intensives, enlightenment guaranteed. And the small print, you know, that they speak very fast in those TV ads. You have to be mindful every moment for seven days. I, we, I don't think we'd have to give our money back very, anytime very soon. But it does point to, you know, yes, this is a gradual path. For most of us, it takes time to deepen and to really free the heart and mind. But every step of the way is a journey to that freeing, is a direct experience of that possibility and that we can know for ourselves through this simple yet profound practice of paying attention in all these different ways. This is what's possible. This is the direction this practice goes to more freedom, happiness, contentment, and peace. So let's let the words settle to silence.
again, thank you for your attention.